Welcome to Liturgy and Lawning, an eight-week limited series podcast about the church and the COVID-19 pandemic. We'll begin each episode with a question and invite each of our participants to introduce themselves and answer the question in turn. We use a process of mutual invitation for this. So, Jason, I'll ask you the question first. And once you've introduced yourself and spoken to that question, you can, you can ask whoever you like to speak next. Our question today, set by Jane, who is going to curate today's episode, is how are you practicing your faith at home? Have you tried anything different since COVID-19 that you had never done before? So, Jason, how are you practicing your faith at home? Okay, so I'm Jason. I am, um, let's see, I'm a father. I'm, uh, I'm a native of Oklahoma City. I'm a huge Thunder fan and uh, miss my NBA basketball quite a bit. So I'm going through withdrawals. <laughs> um, how am I practicing my faith at home? I am not doing anything that different, nothing that novel. Um, I think the thing that pretty much occupies my time, well, I will say this. I mean, I, I do the daily devotional uh, at, least, at least once a day. On the best days, I do it three times a day. And it averages out sometimes about at least twice a day. So, um, you know, I, and honestly, yeah, I mean, it's not anything that um, creative or innovative. It's just something that I didn't tend to do before COVID-19. So, Di, what about you? Um, I Some of the things that I'm doing are different, and some of the things that I'm doing are the same. I am in sort of a round-robin Compline group that has been lovely, and that's sort of at home and sort of public, right? Um, but we're doing it from home. I, I have been... I have a 22-day meditation streak as of today. <laughs> um, I've been doing it longer but that's the unbroken streak. And uh, it's not the same thing as centering prayer. Maybe technically it's not prayer, but it makes me slightly less crazy and makes prayer more available. I'm praying for others a little bit more often. Um, and I'm trying to do Anne Lamott's um, help thanks wow at bedtime with my son. Uh, a lot of what I'm doing at home is simplified right now because I just don't have the brain space. But those are the things I'm doing. Oh, and I forgot to say I'm... Uh, lay Episcopalian uh, with her fingers in a lot of weird projects. So that's who I am. Um, Miriam, I don't know you at all, so I'm really looking forward to hearing your answer on this. Thanks, Di. Uh, I'm Miriam McKenney, and I too, um, I, I loved your description. It's pretty much my description as well. A, a lay uh, person with my fingers in a lot of stuff. Um, but the primary things, I think, uh, that are most pertinent to this work is are that I um, I work at Forward Movement as a fundraiser. I'm a youth minister at Calvary Episcopal Church in Cincinnati, and I do a lot of work in the diocese around becoming beloved community. So um, for me, I think because I was in Spain at the time that all this sort of went down in mid-March and um, had to quarantine as soon as we got home. Um, a lot of the things that I saw online, particularly Facebook, have helped me a lot in my personal uh, practices of my faith at home. So I happened to catch uh, Bishop Jennifer's Compline that she led 
I think right on that Friday night, it had to be March 13th. And uh, it was just so beautiful. And there was a Psalm that she read. It was Psalm 32. And so that has really grounded me. And it's something that I go to often um, through these, through these days. And so I found that I am much more intentional in my prayer life and I'm praying for my enemies a lot more. Uh, so that those are the ways that I think my personal life has changed. My faith has changed. But then of course I'm doing a lot of things with my youth group. We started meeting virtually, um, on the 15th. And so that has really given me a lot of, um, it gives me the fuel for the week, the things that we're doing online. Okay. Carl. Yeah. Going for Thanks, you at home. Um, so I've, I've been doing my morning devotions, but I always do those. So those haven't changed at all. Uh, we have been doing Zoom midday prayer as a parish, usually with between five and 11 people. Um, and, and there are some very definite regulars uh, but that's really been great and delightful. But really the the way my prayer life has changed is that I've, um, I've long loved illuminated manuscripts and particularly like medieval missiles with, you know, these beautiful paintings. And I've always wanted to figure out some way to, to start illuminating a manuscript. And, at the beginning of this, I came to the realization that I didn't really know morning prayer at all. Like I've never really practiced it. I don't think I actually even like it still to this day, but I've been trying to pray it um, as difficult as that may be. And now I'm trying to illuminate it a little bit at a time. So I've been painting a lot as part of my prayer life in a way I really, well, I've always painted, but but not with this kind of intentionality um, or this kind of purpose. So that's what I've been doing. Jane, how about you? Um, so, yeah, I think like many of you, I've been doing some same things and some different things. Um, I think I've long kind of played with how to do family devotions and house church and bring my children together. But um, we've been doing some of that um, on Sunday mornings. I've been doing a little children's church with them and, inviting them to pray with me. And um, sometimes it's as simple as reading the gospel story and saying the Lord's prayer. And sometimes it's a little more involved, um, you know, doing something to reflect on the the message of the day together. Um, So I think that as a sort of family is something that we're just continually trying to find and refine our rhythm around. I think during Holy week, it was really interesting to journey with them through that. And I had, um, I'd seen for many years, the Holy week in a box thing. And I kind of thought it was like a little bit hokey and whether or not my kids would like it, but we ended up making them and giving them to other families in the church And so we had one on our dining room table and my daughter became kind of obsessed with reading the story for the day and was almost the one pushing me to be like, mom, we didn't do our thing for today of whatever day of Holy week it was. Mm -hmm. Um, So in some ways I think her spirituality is guiding my spirituality in this season. And that's been a sort of beautiful um, just realization that there are questions and they really, we've been, playing homeschool. I'm calling it playing homeschool because it does not really feel like real homeschool at our house. 
Um, but, uh, I've been on the days that we get it right. I've been trying to do little meditations in the morning with them as well. And I think that has been um, really kind of good for my soul as well to start without being mad or angry, but to sort of start with trying to be centered and grounded. Um, and like others, I've been doing Compline with our congregation online and, um, there's something beautiful about that service. It's probably my favorite of all of the daily prayer services. And so um, a reminder about how meaningful that is has been really good. So that's kind of what I've been up to in this season. Um, I think today the conversation that we had agreed that we would have together and why I guess I'm leading is because it's something that does matter to me. Um, is this question about being spiritual leaders in our own homes. And I think for me that arises out of, for so long it seems easier for many of us, even those of us who are ordained to sort of outsource Christian education and spiritual life to the local church and to let them guide and lead us in that, um, whether that's the Sunday school teacher or the priest or whomever to to do that work. And um, in talking with some parents, I realized how much we're kind of just being asked to figure it out on our own uh, as we are in our houses during COVID-19. Not that the things that our churches are offering aren't valuable and lovely, but um, I think each family is having to, or each individual, even if they live alone, are having to figure out how to draw close to God in their own time and in their own ways. Um so I've been interested in this, I think, since I started this work of exploring fresh expressions. And I remember even in seminary being really curious about the idea that the church began in homes. I love the story in the book of Acts of Lydia, inviting Paul and his friends to her house. It's one of my favorites. And the idea that women especially would have been the hosts of these gatherings in, in homes that became churches. Um, and that there was this moment in, in the church history where people moved out of the homes into basilicas and public spaces. And yet that the longing that I was hearing from people that I was meeting in doing Fresh Expressions work was for the kind of intimate uh, gatherings within homes or small groups or dinner tables. And so I, I spent a lot of time thinking about that, working with um, house church groups and intentional communities, church plants, dinner churches, uh, small groups wondering kind of how to worship together in ways that didn't look like the public worship of our our beautiful churches. And what it could mean to recover the home and the dinner table as kind of an essential part of our um, life as Christians. And our friend Paul Clever, um, who started a community called Good Earth Farm, he and I spent many hours talking extensively about what he called the twos and threes um, as being kind of the essential building blocks of a faith community. And that families or small communities are sort of the backbone of the church, um, even more than our parish churches or the diocesan church life, which I think many of us have leaned into as being like, this is the foundation. He kept pushing us to think about what are the units that are even smaller than that um, or more fundamental even than that? And so although these communities taught me so much and I think proved to be really formative to a lot of people I know and leaders in the church, 
I struggled and maybe lots of other people did too, to figure out how to integrate that into the, the life of the broader church. And um, at times it felt almost impossible to, to reconcile these small expressions of church with this institution that we have inherited. Um, and yet here we are in this moment, uh, having to figure out how to be church in these small communities, whether that's our faith, our family life. I talked to some friends in Massachusetts um, about a week ago who do live in intentional communities and seeing the ways that they were able to fully live into Holy Week as an intentional community was just so inspiring. Um, and thinking just about like what, what could monastic communities or small communities, uh, Tom Fair, who's the chaplain to the sisters share that they continue to be gathered for worship regularly um, at the convent here in the, at the convent of the transfiguration here in Cincinnati. And so it, it kind of brought all of this back up for me. The other reason I think that this topic remains important to me, and I said a little bit about this in my intro, but as a priest and for many years, my husband worked for the church as well. I struggled with how to do church for our family with young children and many Sundays, both Rob and I would be on the road and not able to attend a local church or not the same church week in and week out. And so as a way to kind of begin to offer some sort of consistent faith formation, I started doing house church, um, years of leading Christian formation experiences and Sunday school and a seminary degree. And still so often as I began, I felt at a loss for how to cultivate my children's faith life in our home. And although we would say prayers or late an advent wreath, um, I, I just couldn't think about how else to do it. And finally, I kind of out of desperation, got up the nerve to start trying house church where we would just read a Bible story and offer prayer requests and light candles and ring bells and sing simple songs together. And my children just loved it. My son started telling me he liked doing house church better than real church, which caused a whole other emotional conflict within. But, um, <laughs> you know, mostly I was so frustrated by how messy it was. I was ended up yelling at some child for not sitting still or they're fighting about who's going to put the candle out. And it just didn't feel very holy or like special to me. It just felt like me trying to make my children do something that I wanted. And they were like, what are we doing? Um, but I realized that we started talking about God a lot more as a family and that they would ask if we could be doing house church. Um, so it was good to draw back on those practices as we began this pandemic, even though I'm now serving in a congregation, um, and to try to share some of what we learned in the process with families in our community and, maybe here as well as we reflect on what what's working. So I'm wondering about how we cultivate faith at home and why it matters to us and perhaps what's the impact um, that the church, how will the church be different because we, we do this. Um, I was remembering hearing Phyllis Tickle talk once, the sort of um, infamous Phyllis Tickle, and she talked about how faith has always been passed down from mother to child and grandmother to grandchildren and that she didn't believe that it was only women's roles to pass down the faith, but that if women were going to be working out of the home, families did need to find ways to pass the faith on because we couldn't outsource it to our local churches, that it was something that had to happen 
by parents modeling what it means to live a life of faith in their own communities. Um, thinking about that passage from Deuteronomy that sort of says, mark your doorposts and teach your children. And as Christians, how that just sort of feels like not something that I was taught to do, even in seminary or even as a Christian formation director, I, I still had to sort of figure it out for myself. Um, so just wondering, I guess I want to ask Miriam first, because I know I've looked to you a lot for how you've done this and the stories you've shared with me over the years. Um, Miriam works, as she said earlier, with forward movement and with a part of forward movement called Grow Christians and Forma and lots of other groups around the Episcopal Church and beyond about spiritual practices that work for families and individuals, things that can be practiced at home. So I'm wondering why this matters to you, Miriam, or any thoughts or reflections on what I've shared so far. Yeah, actually, thank you for that. Um, just for, for guiding through your thinking and, and through some of your practices, because it got me thinking about why this is important to me. Um, and I have to say the biggest reason is because, um, you know, my dad is an Episcopal priest. And so I've grown up in the Episcopal church. And he felt his call very early. So it's, 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 it's always been a part of our lives and we've always been Episcopalian. And yet he's from a generation where, you know, um, for a variety of reasons, they could show us better than they could tell us. But it didn't happen at home in the way that you would think. So, you know, he was all about church and he was at church a lot and we were at, at church on Sundays and, um, you know, confirmation and the whole nine. But then when we got home, we really didn't do a lot of churchy stuff. I mean, we talked about the church as an entity, but we didn't talk about scripture. We didn't, I never saw my dad read the Bible. Now I did see my mom do it, but it was a very personal devotion and, and a set of practices that she had, again, that she never talked about. So I think I realized as a parent, um, and definitely as my kids got older, that you, I couldn't just leave it to church. And I'll be extremely honest here and say, I went 18 years without a church home. I mean, it's not like I never went to church in that time, but from the time I graduated from college till I was, till my youngest was born, which was 16 years ago, I, you know, my husband and I did not attend church regularly. So my parents, of course, took my oldest to church and were very serious. You know, she needs to go to church. She needs to go to church. But what started to become more important to me was who does she understand God to be? Who does she understand Jesus to be? How does the spirit work in her life? And I realized like everything else, um, those kinds of learnings needed to happen at home, and it is not organic. You have to be intentional about it. So I was a librarian for t over 20 years before I started working at Forward Movement. So I always believed in the concept that you don't start, you don't, you know, parents shouldn't expect that teachers are going to teach your kid how to do everything that they know, need to know how to do. It needs to happen at home. Parents are the first natural teachers. And that needed to be true for that spiritual teaching as well. But before I could really get into that with my kids, I needed to have 
a grip on it in myself and come to an understanding of my own spiritual practices. And I didn't feel like I could expect them to do anything that I wasn't doing myself. So godly play and being involved in that as a teacher helped me a lot in being able to have conversations with the girls at home. I have three daughters. I didn't really say that clearly, Um, but it helped me to begin to have those conversations with them and apply the lessons in scripture and the stories from scripture into our day-to-day life. Thank you, Miriam. I, I totally agree. For me, Godly Play was like the introduction for how to have different kind of like non-dogmatic conversations with my children, just to wonder together what God might be up to. So yeah. Wondering about others, do you want to share a little bit about kind of your memories of religious education or what you learned from your families? Um, well, I can jump in. I am. Um... And so, I, so I took a class on children and youth formation in seminary, and the professor had us do this thought experiment. Well, he had us spend a few minutes reflecting on what we remembered from church as children. And then we all went around, and we read what we had written. And then he pointed out that those of us who came from non-liturgical churches, so Methodists like me, you know, growing up, um, Baptists, et cetera, we all talked about Sunday school. And people who came from liturgical churches, Catholics, Lutherans, and Episcopalians, all talked about the experience of being in church, which was really, it was really fascinating um, because they talked about stained glass windows and they talked about sculptures and things like that. And I've long thought about why that was. And I was talking to a friend of mine a a few weeks ago about it. And she said, um, well, maybe it's just that kids remember the stories and wherever the stories are is where they're going to uh, remember being when you ask them to remember back. Right. So as a United Methodist, the stories were all in Sunday school and, and not really in church at all. And I think for kids who went to churches with like really great imagery, the stories were there in the images, right. In the stained glass windows and, and other things. But I have to say for myself now, it's um, my daughter is 17, so she's um, well past an age where godly play is going to work for her. <laughs> um, she's been doing EFM, which is really funny. So she's like a 17-year-old in this EFM class with a, uh, you know, a bunch of people who are all 40 years older than her. Um, but she also is um, – she's really – she really connects – with kind of neo-Gothic churches and she wants places that seem set aside and, and very holy and filled with that kind of worn feeling of pe- that you, a place gets when people pray in it year after year after year. And so spiritual life from home is not really working for her right now. You know, like nothing we're doing in the home is of, of much value to her. She's not interested in like our, you know, Zoom Sunday morning or our uh, Facebook Live Sunday morning services where my wife is working the camera and we're both awkwardly singing along with the hymns. Uh, my daughter is upstairs in bed. But I, w- I would say probably the the most fundamental thing we do f- for our spirituality every day is to take a walk. And um, it's there that we kind of get into the deeper conversations about life, the meaning, meaning God, beauty, etc. 
So I think that's where we're at. I think it's part of it is just a factor though, of having a, a child who's, who's older. Although Miriam, I know your kids are older and I'd be interested to know as they aged into their high school years, how things changed, but uh, here we are. I had this weird situation where I'm in a blended family and, um, and so my wife has two girls and I have two girls and, and um, my wife is a baptized Catholic, but not necessarily. And she, and, and, and I think the thing that I remember when I wanted to, um, to try this whole marriage thing again, I remember I did not want to meet somebody who was particularly um, very religious just because of I had the person that I had married before was very religious and just did this 180 and everything just went haywire. And, um, and so I'm now the upshot of all that is really that I'm in this situation where I'm probably the most religious person in my household. And I mean, my two girls, they certainly have been influenced by me and, but they, they go to their mom's house and a lot, you know, things that we talk about, they tend to hear a very different way of viewing it and not, not a completely different way in many ways, but in, in some ways, but ultimately what it comes down to, what I'm trying to say is, is I'm the most religious person in the home. And um, I think what I do, and, and there's ways that I try to be surreptitious about how I teach or how I even um, emphasize the, the religious nature of kind of our, of our calendar. Um, so ultimately what it boils down to, what I'm trying to say is I don't let us go through like an Easter or a Christmas or even like a St. Patrick's day without making sure the kids understand its connection to the church, to tradition, to, you know, even faith. And I mean, and ways to just try to do it very furtively. And, um, I, I think ultimately that's kind of my, my method right now is, you know, I mean, I do some more explicit stuff with my daughters, with my two daughters, um, every once in a while. It's funny that I forgot to mention, I did do something innovative, I will say, for Palm Sunday, which involved um, a fire pit <laughs> and throwing the palms or whatever we used into the fire. And I tried to make it, and I had the kids do some some stuff from that um, illustrate, illustrated children's ministry. I had them do some things. And so I did do something for Palm Sunday. And, um, and I, again, I have to get creative in order to sometimes to appeal to my wife's daughters. And so we ended up, the cat was played the role of Jesus as Jesus was entering into the city. And so, you know, cause my, my wife's oldest daughter loves the cat or cat and is obsessed with it. So I, I did have to find creative ways to get them involved, but I will, I thought it was funny. I look back, I go, I, we celebrated Palm Sunday more than we did Easter. I mean, we did have, we had a really nice meal on Easter, but that, we didn't really do anything else besides that. So I have a weird situation, but I do try to do stuff. I don't, I just don't have the opportunity to necessarily, I, I feel like I have to, I have to kind of just uh, gradually or very secretively kind of explain or, or um, teach Nothing, nothing very explicit. Jason, I'm picturing you as like an Episcopal secret agent right now. Yeah. And there's a trench coat and there are sunglasses and there's a prayer book and it's a great mental image. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty much my situation. <laughs> yeah. um, my formation as a kid and my son's formation are pretty spectacularly different. I was the first person in my household to be Christian. Um, mm. When I was a little kid, my mom was a single parent 
um, with not a lot of money and she wanted to make sure I had a good education and she felt like a private school was the way to do that. And the most affordable private school was the local Christian school. So that's where she sent me. And she said to the principal when she was enrolling me, uh, this is great. I just want her to get a good education. I really don't care about the God part and that's fine. Hmm. Um, so I got an evangelical Christian school. I got, um, when my mom was deployed for desert storm, I lived with a family who were part of the church of Christ, not UCC, the um, sort of Southern and very conservative church of Christ. I have Roman Catholic grandparents with whom I lived from time to time and said the rosary with at bedtime. Um, so it's this really broad spectrum of formation. Um, and I just sort of pieced together the quilt that I could, but it was not, it was not from my parents and it was not in my primary home. Um, my son Sam's is pretty different from that, of course. Um, and what I find with formation for him, um, you know, it's funny. We're, we talk about when to have service times in, in bigger congregational settings. Um, and I find that at home service time matters, right? Like I have a really active kid and I have a really like fact-based kid. So if we're going to think about things, if he's going to stay still, then it's at bedtime because then it's stalling and he's open to stretching it out. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. So we have done things like um, there's a British Jesuit app called Praise You Go and they have a wonderful Ignatian examine for bedtime. And there's a children's option too. And it's so, so it's huh. the children's option is even fantastic for adults. It's so good. Um, during seasons like Lent and Advent, we'll try different prayer practices and we'll try them at bedtime because then he's going to be in one place. Um, so we've tried different things, but one of the things that I noticed that stands out to me and, and I love godly play too. And the focus on wondering in godly play is one way to get at this issue. Um, but one thing I really notice is that it is hard to do authentic religious formation, authentic Christian instruction in seasons where I'm really struggling with both God and the church. Um, because I'm not a, this is the answer kind of person. I want to invite that wondering, but sometimes I'm ticked. Um, and it's really hard in seasons like that to show my kid how this is important, why it's important, and um, and what staying in the fight, even with those tensions, look like. That can be tricky for me. So um, a little bit. That's where I am now, truthfully. So good, Di. I totally agree. I mean, I think, like, not wanting to, like, burden our children with our parents, like, drama. Like, I think there's a part of it that I'm always like, I don't know if they need to know all this. And yet there is a part of it that's like there are just seasons or times where it just doesn't feel authentic or real and that there is a need for more emotional distance, whatever that looks like, physical or emotional disconnect from faith communities um, to just remain who you are and, and realize that there are, I don't know, I guess for me, at least my own understanding of spirituality at this point is that there are those seasons of kind of like desert and then like richness and new life, but how to demonstrate that to children in ways that doesn't disillusion them or something feels complicated for sure. Well, that, I mean, that also fits with what something that Fab Duell used to say, which is um, don't, don't 
tell your children anything that you will have to admit you were lying about later on. <laughs> you know, so, so if it's a story in the Bible that might be deeply challenging to young children, like Noah's Ark, maybe don't tell them that story until they're older, until they can like question about God wanting to destroy the world and what that means. And you can have a, a really deep conversation about it. I think it taps into the sense though, of like realizing that it's not something we outsource either though, right. That we are spiritual leaders and like the witness that we are providing, you know, kind of calls upon a kind of owning of that authority. Right. Like I think sometimes it would be easier to say, that's not my problem. Or I hear a lot of parents say like, I just want my kids to decide for themselves. And realizing that like our actions are actually shaping, you know, the things we say and do actually do influence how our children are going to understand what it means to be a person of faith. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think actually, um, you know, what you just talked about there, Carl, as far as um, being able to, uh, I don't know, I guess I see it as being able to be there with kids with the story and say, you know what, I don't understand this either. I mean, remember when we had that whole Exodus reading, uh, the big read? And so my youth group took on reading Exodus, and two of my kids were in youth group at that time. Um, And so we were reading it. And, of course, these are all kids I've taught godly play. And so we'd come across things, and they'd say, hold on. I don't remember this being in the godly play lesson. I'm like, yeah, that wasn't in the godly play lesson. Stuff is going on that we don't read even in church. And so they would ask me about, you know, well, why did this happen? And what went on here? What's the subtext here? And and I would say, listen, you know what? I don't know. Let's look it up. And I think them seeing me struggle with it makes it open to them. It makes it something that they can say, okay, you know what? If Miss Miriam doesn't get this, then it's okay that I don't get it. But yet we can work on finding the answers. I'm not going to say, well, let's go ask Reverend so-and-so. Because they might not know either. Ordination does not give you instant access to all the answers that the scriptures hold. And we as lay people, we as youth, we as kids can work on finding those answers. So I think that's probably, you know, going back to your earlier question, um, the thing that I do with my young people, with my youth, to help them understand that there's never a time that I don't struggle with the scriptures and that's all right. We can continue to struggle on it. And, and to get to the godly play piece too, I help them with, with going into the scriptures. Like there's no youth version that we're doing. It's NRSV or it's CEB. We actually just finished a whole thing of comparing different translations. Um, and so we use the wondering questions on the scripture so, because I think that helps them bridge the gap that the stuff that I did when I was in the first and the second grade, those were the Bible stories. And now I'm getting into it on another level, but those same wondering questions can apply. So that has been um, successful with, with my kids. And I have a lot of actual Montessori kids, which I was a Montessori kid. My kids went to Montessori. So I think those asking those kinds of questions comes very naturally to them and, and they're open to it. That's not for every kid and for every youth group, but it's worked for mine. Mm-hmm. 
That's really good. So we've been talking about kind of what we're doing in our families. And I guess I would love to hear what you're hearing from other families, if you are in touch with other families from your church about how this is going. I mean, all of us are pretty explicitly engaged in religious life of our congregations, teaching and leading. Um, But I mean, I could imagine for some families, this is a hard transition to figure out how to do this. Um, I've certainly heard that from some of our families and um, been trying to offer them resources for how to do it. But also what does it mean for the future of the church? I mean, what, what might be happening to us now while we're trying to live into our faith at home um, that might shape the way we understand essentially the assembly. Um, and I think it goes back to my earlier point about this idea that the early church used this kind of Greek word oikos as the household of God, as the sort of fundamental piece of how we understood what it meant to be church. And how do we, how do we think about what it means to have a community of households instead of a parish church as the sort of basis of a future church? It's just a question I've been pondering and wondering if you all had any further thoughts about that. Like how does this moment of COVID-19 and faith change the church? I know that just speaking for my youth group parents, they're all extremely grateful that we are having youth group and Honestly, I have higher attendance now than ever because I'm not competing with baseball practice, volleyball practice, basketball practice, dance practice. Um, Mom and dad didn't feel like going today, whatever, fill in the blank. I'm not competing with that. And so my takeaway is that um, at the point that we do gather again, I will continue to have the Zoom room open for whomever wants to join from home or even if they only have 10 or 15 minutes. But I know I'm still working on um, how to bring the parents into that and help them have these conversations. You know, the things with teenagers is that this is a time when their development is really contingent upon them breaking away from their families and cultivating these friendships and relationships And they're able to do that online. I mean, they have a lot to teach us about doing that um, online, but they're not able to do it in person. And I know that that is really, really tough. We talk about that every week. Um, That's what they say. And especially my older kids, it's really difficult for them. So they're finding ways to do it. And so I guess my next plan is to have a parent meeting, to talk openly um, with them about how it's going, what are they struggling with, um, what's been easier than they thought, and then find some ways to invite them into some conversations about how their child's faith is going. Because I know that those are not organic conversations. Those are not conversations that they're having. Yeah, you know, when I, <clears throat> as I think through, and, and this may not directly answer the question that you asked, but you know, in seminary, it was, I think it was like a sermon, like a homiletics professor, you always like architecture always wins. And you were, and I remember when I first read that, I was like, what does that mean? And really, how does that really apply to my, my experience and to the experience of being a priest or, or a parishioner or whatever? And 
I mean, I'm start, I think I, I feel like I'm starting to really understand the sense of like how inherently within that, especially with Episcopal buildings and the architecture and the way things are laid out, there's that inherent hierarchy, you know, whereas, whereas on Zoom, everybody's just kind of there. There doesn't, there, it's inherently democratic in a sense. And I feel like that, that really has a really big impact, even if we're not completely conscious of it. Just the way that we, we don't, like you were saying, Miriam, you don't have to go ask some reverend for what does this scripture say? Mm. You know I mean? It's like, there's this sense of we're all in this together. And even though that's become cliche almost, um, but there's just definitely, I don't know, the architecture, the shift, this format is, is more impactful than, than I think we realize. It's, it's subtle, but it's very powerful. Um, you know I mean? I think what I'm, how that connects with, I think the question that you asked is I'm seeing so many more people within the congregation that I help um, right now. I'm seeing them step up and lead Mm. um, and be innovative and use their gifts and skills to, I think, you know, just to bring the church together and to, you know, help us to not only survive this, but to, to adapt and to, you know, redefine who we are and reinvent who we are. So I, I'm just seeing, I'm just impressed with the leadership that I'm seeing. And I think it has a lot to do with, you know, I mean, when you're in a home, when you're in a different environment, you feel less, you feel more comfortable maybe, you know, less like you have to adhere to maybe the hierarchy or the, the structure you know, so it's like in pilgrimage stuff, it's like that, like that liminal thing or communitas thing. It's like all this, it's like anti-structure, you know, like we're in that real, that space. That's really fascinating. I wonder, Jane, when you were doing uh, house churches, was it, was it the, was it intimacy that people were pursuing? Because I think, you know, our worship goes in two directions. It's on a horizontal axis and a vertical, right? And I know some people who want to come into a building and sit by themselves and just concentrate on that vertical axis of God and have no desire or maybe no desire in the moment for kind of a more intimate community. Um, but was that was that what house church was really all about? Was people who were like, no, no, there's too much vertical, uh, you know, in my life, I want more horizontal. I think definitely intimacy. I think definitely depth. And I think authenticity. Those would be the things I would say people say they're missing. I think everyone admits that whether it's in a forest or a cathedral, there's something, you know, beautiful and awe-inspiring that connects us to the divine. Um, And that that's, that's a avenue to connecting to, to spirituality. But I think the sense of so many churches no one would talk to someone about anything that mattered. Like, so they could sit in a beautiful space and worship, but if there's no one that sits down and says, how's your soul? Like what's going on? What, what brings meaning to your life? I think after a couple of times of sitting in that beautiful space, something's missing. And I certainly have seen examples. I mean, I think the noon service at the cathedrals figuring out how to like tap into both things, right? Like they're tapping into beauty and intimate conversation and that seems to be feeding you know a certain group of people something that they had long been longing for but 
I, I agree with you that it's on two axes, but I think the what I heard from intentional community people and people doing house church kind of things, dinner church, it was about depth of conversation and connection, like community. What do you think it is for children? And maybe this is for like Di or Miriam, like what, with, with small children, are they more interested in the horizontal axis or the vertical, or are they just like everyone else, a, a giant mix? I always say you can always hypnotize a child with a candle. <laughs> so most children, um, I think, do long for something mysterious. I think there is, I think there are children like that. Um but children want to process and figure it out. I also think it depends on the age. I find three to six-year-olds more awe-inspiring and like more longing for that sort of just sit in wonder. And that, you know, six to 10-year-olds have more of a desire to like discuss, process, weigh in. What do you guys think? Well, I actually... um Carl used to be the children and youth priest where I worship. Um, and the first time I met him, I said, Hey, I think that I was set up to speak with you because I have a child, uh, but I don't, I, I would prefer not to do children's ministry. <laughs> um, so I have some training and a lot of work in this, but it's not something I'm hearing a lot about now. Um, I'm, so I'm going to throw the baton to Miriam because it's not, it's not my area of specialties right now. Um, well, I definitely, you know, I admit that I am a follow the child type of Montessori person. And so I have followed my children from the nursery to godly play to uh, youth ministry. But, um, I do definitely agree with you, Jane, that younger kids, um, I mean, I definitely know from, from my teaching experience and from the children at our church now, um, where we have an active family, uh, worship experience and, um, our, um, Sunday school program is robust, particularly with younger children that they are very, very intrigued by, um, mystery candles, the, the, the pieces of the ceremony that they're able to participate in and giving them that opportunity just really opens up their minds and their hearts to the fact that their faith belongs to them and this worship experience belongs to them. But I definitely agree Jane, that the older they get, it's like they're trying to peek under the curtain and see what's really going on here and, and figure things out. Um, like, is this mystery? Can I trust that it's a mystery? Is, is the mystery we're talking about? Um, you know, cause like one of my favorite godly play lessons that to me knows no age or bound is that you have the Jesus candle and it's lit. And then when you blow it out, that smoke is going everywhere and Jesus is everywhere. Like that is, is, mysterious and concrete at the same time. And so I, I have found that that's how I think, you know, when I, you know, when I'm trying to approach something, no matter what the age is, I'm always trying to think of it as, does it have that same level of awe that you have when you watch that happen and you connect the dots that, okay, I can then apply this to my life and say, that I can look for Jesus everywhere. Even if I can't see Jesus, Jesus is there. So um, I think that right now I can only imagine, you know, again, my youngest is 16. Um, I really, I think parents, I've, at least what I've heard from the parents of young kids that I know is that they're really struggling 
um, with, with all of it because you just don't have, the kids don't have a device that you can give them where they can go and, and hang out with other people necessarily. And they, they're constantly looking to you as a parent to help them figure things out. And I know that that is exhausting. And, and, um, you know, again, I can put myself 10 years ago and imagine what it would be like. And I like, it makes my head hurt. So I think that I really do agree and believe in the concept of faith at home and home church. But I also know that when you're trying to cultivate that kind of a, a mindset and culture, along with having to do school and then the basics cooking and you get still got to take a bath, I guess, every now and again, I, I can I can imagine that it's very difficult and that people need a lot of help with this. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I, the reason I started to ask that question is just thinking through what will the future be like or how will this time affect the future? It seems there are some things, you know, hopefully it will mean that we are we become more adept at combining um, both the intimate and the transcendent all at once in the things we do, like that Jesus candle, which is such a beautiful metaphor. But also... I mean, frankly, I hope there are things from this that do not persist, you know, and part of it, Miriam, I think you were just naming, which, I, which is, you know, we need communities. We need people around us to help us do the simpler things like, you know, raising our children or give us momentary yeah. breaks. And uh, that's got to come back soon. So. Child care. We need child care. <laughs> child care. Right. Parents need like their kids to go off to Sunday school so that they can have 20 minutes to just be with God during the week without being just bothered. Amen. At this point, That's we need right. respite care. Yes. <laughs> yes. And how do you do that when your kids are like right over there? I mean, that is, and especially the younger kids, I know that it's, a, that it's really hard for the parents of younger kids. So, I mean, to, to, so you, I agree with you, Carl, that's got to go. And yet, how can we, how can we as faith leaders help parents figure out how to do that? Cause I mean, we, we, I don't know about any of you. I'm, I'm a realist and I see us in this for a much longer time than anyone wants to admit, because in order to cope with it, you can't think I'm going to be doing this for X amount of more months. I tend to think in weeks I can manage weeks, even if the number is bigger, it still, it seems shorter. Mm -hmm. So when we're thinking about that, you know, I really, and that's where I'm at. And I think our, our community at Calvary is also there of how can we help parents to, bring these concepts into the home without making them think, Oh my gosh, this is one more thing. It's one more thing. How can this feel like it's going to help every other thing? If you bring this piece in. Honestly, Miriam earlier, when you were talking about just how hard it is, I really wanted to just kiss you on the face for acknowledging it. Uh, Because I think maybe that's a piece of it is especially in the first weeks. I don't know about other parents of young children, but really loving, well-intended people deluged me with things you, wonderful things you can do with your children. And like, it's like having a spider monkey stuck to me 24 hours a day. I can't, I can't, like I want to, and I'm doing my best. Um, but I honestly think it is tremendously good pastoral care for families right now to just say, no, you actually cannot do some of this. 
please stop trying. That's insane. I feel that way about the number of things I've gotten about how to do church well. I'm like, leave me alone. <laughs> Doing the best we can over here. Right. Amen. Yeah. No. Anyway. I think not setting the bar so high. And I think for me, at least, that's where this reminder that spirituality at home, just like feeding our children, which sometimes just involves throwing goldfish at them or, you know, box mac and cheese or something, has to... <laughs> be okay right like there has to be a like it's messy it's imperfect but like here's what we accomplished like that was enough everyone got something got fed some basic questions about the world got answered and we went for a walk like maybe that's enough Um, also enough for them just to know that you love them right i mean like what is at the heart of the christian message you are loved completely and so let them know that any way you can. It doesn't, in some ways, the vehicle by which they come to know that matters less than the, the thing itself. Totally agree. Well, I know we're coming to the end of our time here. I don't know if people have other thoughts. There's always more that we could reflect on, both theologically and practically in these talks. But um, it feels like there's a lot of wisdom that emerged today, both about just like how to survive as well as how to continue to ask good questions of ourselves and our community um, about how to practice our faith in very strange times that we find ourselves in. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Liturgy and Lawning. Our theme music is by Brianna Kelly, and you can find more of her music at Bandcamp. Our special guest today was the wonderful Miriam McKinney. We'll be back next week when our topic will be looking at the tradition and history of ancient practices. See you all next week. Oh.